the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Monday afternoon, the last day of November. Now, I should mention and welcome our Seattle listeners. I'm going to be sitting in for live from Seattle this and next week. That's KGNW 820, The Word. So welcome to our Seattle listeners. We'll try to cover some of your news as well as local news here in the Portland metro area. Just like you're used to, we're going to cover the uh, news headlines. We're going to talk about uh, some of the issues of our day from a Christian perspective. So I hope you will enjoy our time together and welcome. Well, we'll begin by looking at some of the day's headlines. The outcome of the 2020 presidential election, we're being told by the president, is still a long way off. The president spoke on Thursday, but he added he would leave office if the Electoral College votes for Democrat Joe Biden. So any speculation about whether or not the president is going to step away uh, if the Electoral College votes are not there to support his presidency, his second term. Certainly I will, he said. You know that I will, Trump said, about leaving the White House if necessary. But he added, it's going to be a very hard thing to concede. Well, speaking to reporters on Thanksgiving Day, the president reiterated his claim of massive fraud in the vote count and promised to keep up his legal fight. Well, regarding the series of legal challenges in multiple states, the president said a lot of things are happening between now and January the 20th, which is, of course, Inauguration Day. Asked if he would consider running again on the Republican ticket in 2024, Trump said, I don't want to talk of 2024 just yet. Well, Trump drew thanks from three court picks backing uh, religion over government overreach. We'll talk more about that in terms of um, Cuomo's uh, decisions. And a Navy vet in Pennsylvania claims that USB cards may have loaded, been loaded rather, with illegal votes. The president says coronavirus vaccine deliveries will start next week for health care workers, and he plans a trip to Georgia amid his election battle. Meanwhile, uh, presumptive presidential elect Biden says that Trump's administration outreach on the transition has been sincere. Purdue and Loeffler are backing Trump's call for a Georgia recount and more signature matching, which uh, Georgia has said is impossible because the envelopes and the ballots are separated early on. And Mr. Biden has distanced himself from Obama amid third term comparisons. Former President Obama's comments on Hispanics overlooked his own record of migrants in cages. Many of the images that we're uh, being shown are from his administration. Well, Amazon is going to give $500 million in special holiday bonuses to frontline employees. And Twitter claims it's reversed its ban of the link to Sidney Powell's Georgia election lawsuit. And Britain plans to create a watchdog to police big tech companies, including Google and Facebook, even our own Congress is contemplating something similar. And Delta plans to launch quarantine-free flights between Atlanta and Rome. Not sure I'd want to be on one of them. Meanwhile, Sunday marked the busiest travel day in U.S. airports since March. That's when the pandemic officially hit this area, at least to our knowledge, prompting concern among the nation's top health officials who fear the uptick in travel may hinder efforts to stem the spread of the coronavirus. 
Well, the Transportation Secretary Administration, or TSA, screened about 1,176,091 individuals at checkpoints across the country on the 29th, marking the highest passenger volume recorded since around March 16th. Well, the milestone followed a very busy travel week ahead of Thanksgiving, when anywhere from 800,000 to more than a million travelers made their way through airport checkpoints every day. In the weekend leading up to the holiday, TSA had already screened more than 3 million people. It's a stark contrast to the number of people traveling earlier in the pandemic when daily totals fell below 100,000 on some spring days. Well, the increase in passenger volume, although a noteworthy development for the devastated airline industry, indicates that droves of Americans kept their travel plans and disregarded advice from public health experts that have increasingly begged people to stay home and avoid large gatherings. Well, the future of flying during the coronavirus means carrying what they're calling a passport to show proof of vaccination against COVID-19. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about whether or not Americans are prepared to take this vaccine. It was a compressed time frame in which the process of um, bringing it to the public uh, was shortened. Uh, It was a state of emergency. And even now, the FCC is considering emergency release of some uh, vaccines. But the, the question is whether or not people are willing to take the virus if it means, uh, or excuse me, take the vaccine if it means uh, that they cannot travel or engage in certain activities. So the future of flying and other activities may in fact require something like a passport to show proof of vaccination against COVID-19. Well, the International Air Transport Association is in the process of finalizing a digital COVID-19 passport that would include information about a traveler's COVID-19 testing and vaccinations that would be verified by labs, airlines, and government agencies, according to a new report. Well, testing is the first key to enable international travel without quarantine measures. The second key is the global information infrastructure needed to securely manage, share, and verify test data matched with traveler identities in the compliance with Border Patrol requirements. That's according to the um, officials. We are bringing this to market in the coming months to also meet the needs of the various travel bubbles and public health corridors that are starting Uh, to operate. The Hill was first to report news that the digital COVID-19 passport is in development. The COVID-19 passport would provide a health itinerary of sorts that would identify testing facilities and labs for passengers at their place of departure and ensures that passengers are safe and able to travel to their destination without restrictions such as quarantine. So the uh, converse, I suppose, is whether or not we'll be permitted to travel if we elect not to have the vaccine, at least in early days. And the answer appears to be at this point, the direction we seem to be moving toward is requiring uh, people to have them in order to engage in commercial travel. Well, in other news, President Trump uh, told Sunday Morning Futures that the Department of Justice is missing in action regarding his claims of widespread election fraud. He told Maria Bartiromo in a rather peculiar interview, she's the host, by the way, that he has not seen anything from the Department of Justice or the Federal Bureau of Investigation on investigating the 2020 election. You would think if you're in the FBI or Department of Justice, this is the biggest thing you could be looking at, Trump said. Where are they? I've not seen anything. They just keep moving along and they go on to the next president, he continued. Well, that's sort of how it happens. Well, Trump's legal team is attempting to prove through various legal battles that the president is the rightful winner of the 2020 presidential election. But that time frame is narrowing as certification is just beyond the horizon. Well, the president slammed judges' uh, election decisions, asking what kind of court system is this? And a Pennsylvania Supreme Court has dismissed a Republican congressman's bid to toss mail-in ballots and halt certification. 
The Trump campaign uh, is eyeing a Supreme Court battle after an appeals panel tossed a Pennsylvania fraud case, and the president is calling into a Pennsylvania election meeting, repeating claims of voting irregularities. Meanwhile, Senator Tom Cotton slammed Biden's unity platform on Twitter, pointing to the administration's picks. Senator Cotton on Sunday took President-elect Joe Biden to task over his pledge to unify the country, yet still chose controversial people to fill his cabinet. Biden said he wanted to unify the country, Cotton wrote on Twitter, but he's picked a national security team that is um, weak on China, a DHS nominee who sold visas for powerful political friends, and a partisan hack who calls Susan Collins the worst for OMB, so much for unity, end quote. Well, Biden has tapped mainstream Democrats to lead his foreign policy and national security team. Despite having extensive government experience, they've been criticized by some as having a limited range of views on China. Biden's pick for Homeland Security, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas, faced criticism during the Obama administration after an inspector general report found that he intervened to help foreign investors in the EB-5 visa program who were connected to top Democrats. Well, in other developments, the Biden White House communications team raises questions over a revolving door with liberal networks and Black Lives Matter. Uh, supporters continue to protest Biden's consideration of L.A. Mayor Garcetti for a cabinet appointment. Kamala Harris is being slammed for a tweet courting small businesses after bailing out rioters who destroyed said small businesses. Democrats are feuding over who Biden will pick for his agriculture secretary and progressive groups want squad member Rashida Tlaib in Biden's cabinet. Well, the media is fawning over Biden's cabinet rollout, describing it as being rescued from this craziness by superheroes. You can judge for yourself whether or not you think this lineup consists of superheroes. And Josh Hawley criticized Biden's cabinet picks as corporatists, war enthusiasts, and big tech sellouts. Hmm, to each his own. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're also uh, simulcasting with KGNW 820 The Word. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're also simulcasting live from Seattle. KGNW 820 The Word. Glad to have you all along for the ride. Well, a member of President-elect Joe Biden's COVID-19 advisory board on Saturday made a grim prediction about U.S. coronavirus cases in the coming weeks after millions of Americans traveled for Thanksgiving, despite warnings from public health officials, some of whom, by the way, were themselves traveling. We fully expect that in about a week or two after Thanksgiving, we will see an increase in cases first. Then about a week or two later, you'll start to see an increase in hospitalizations. And then another week or two after that, you'll start to see deaths. That's a quote from Dr. Celine Gounder speaking to CBS News. Well, Gounder, a clinical assistant professor at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine, noted that COVID-19 symptoms can develop up to two weeks after exposure, which means that people who celebrated with family, with friends over Thanksgiving, will find themselves in the hospital in ICUs over Christmas and New Year's. Well, her comments come as the number of new COVID-19 cases reported in the U.S. topped 200,000 for the first time on Friday. The highest previous daily count was 196,000. That was on the 20th of November, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. By the way, Johns Hopkins published an article questioning the numbers of COVID-19 deaths, the proposed numbers. They quickly took it down because it doesn't really 
uh, jive with the narrative that we are embracing. But there is some question about how numbers are calculated. That said, the institution reported a high or high of more than two million tests a few days before Thanksgiving as people prepared to travel. But that number has dropped to less than 1.2 million tests on Thanksgiving Day. In other developments, uh, Steve Mnuchin plans to move $455 billion in coronavirus relief out of Biden's reach. I'm not sure how you do that for the next administration. And Biden is asking Americans to forego holiday traditions amid the pandemic. Republican Iowa congressional candidate Miller Meeks is expected to win by six votes after the recount there. And British hospitals uh, may get the first coronavirus vaccine doses next week. Presumed President-elect Joe Biden will receive his first president's daily briefing today. Well, nearly one third of New York and New Jersey small businesses reportedly closed in 2020. And Mr. Biden will name Rouse and Tandon to his economic team. As expected, the coronavirus changed Black Friday shopping as shoppers went online instead of crowding into stores. The Trump administration is touting Pfizer and Moderna's coronavirus vaccines as safe, and Whole Foods CEO has slammed socialism as trickle-up poverty, saying it doesn't work. Senator Rand Paul is claiming statistical fraud in states where Trump lost and calls out big tech. Another new Supreme Court has halted uh, Cuomo's church restrictions. We'll talk more about it in detail later, but the court's ruling is neither surprising nor alarming. Cuomo's rules discriminate against religious services and thereby run afoul of the Constitution. And to fix the problem, Cuomo would not need to um, exempt houses of worship from the, uh, the law everyone else follows, but merely ensure that churches aren't relegated to second class status. Nike and Coca-Cola are fighting to keep their use of forced labor from China. Nike and Coca-Cola are among the major companies and business groups lobbying Congress to weaken a bill that would ban imported goods made with forced labor in China's Xinjiang region, according to congressional staff members and other people familiar with the matter, as well as lobbying records that show vast spending on the legislation. David French says next time one of these corporations tries to sanction a U.S. state for protecting life or religious liberty, remember this story. Meanwhile, presumptive uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is being mocked for now caring about small businesses when she helped bail out rioters who destroyed those businesses just months ago. And families are bailing on New York schools as enrollment drops, especially in high school and high rent districts, uh, according to Stanton Island Live. And this comes as New York City plans to reopen in-person learning. A look at some of the stunning sky is falling CNN headlines from July to on opening schools is at least a partial explanation as to why that may be the case. Well, a Republican leads a Democrat by six votes after the recount for a House seat out in Iowa. There were nearly 400,000 votes cast. John Fun looked at how Prop 16, which was a left-wing attempt and Racial preferences cost them in the state of California. That, again, may be something of an explanation. Well, Democrat Congresswoman Tlaib, uh, again, is boldly tweeting anti-Semitism. Rashid Tlaib RT's out the, the uh, same message, uh, tweeted out the same message that got Mark Lamont Hill canned from CNN. Stop antisemitism.org noted. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, code for eradicating the state of Israel and its millions of Jews. Reminder, this is a sitting U.S. congresswoman. She later removed the tweet 
but she did actually tweet it, and it was seen. Well, the president plans to seek help from Supreme Court on election fraud, but admits it's hard to get into the Supreme Court. Sidney Powell filed a lawsuit in Michigan against Dominion Software. They're the ones who are responsible for the software, the election machines themselves, and the Wisconsin recount didn't change much. The president of Brazil is citing a lot of fraud in the United States election, has not yet recognized a Biden victory. I'm not sure if he's hopeful for a change, but he hasn't yet uh, congratulated Biden. Over 100 are dead in a Boko Haram attack in Nigeria. The the um, jihadist-backed group in the news again uh, with a chilling attack on a farmer, 100 dead. And as you may know, there's a genocide against Christians in that country, Boko Haram being one of the major groups uh, focused on the believing population there. President Trump will campaign for Senators Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. And Georgia's runoff has seen $272 million in ad spending in just 22 days. Now, keep in mind, the outcome of that race will determine whether the Republicans or the Democrats will control the Senate under a Biden administration should the presumptive nominee um, become the next president. Well, Trump has fallen short in the Wisconsin recount. Dane County was the second and last county to finish its recount there, reporting a 45-vote gain for Trump. Milwaukee County, the state's other big and overwhelmingly liberal county targeted in the recount that Trump paid $3 million for, reported its results on Friday, a 132-vote gain for Biden. Taken together, the two counties barely budged Biden's winning margin of about 20,600 votes, giving the winner a net gain of 87 votes. The Third Circuit Court of uh, Appeals has uh, rejected Trump's appeal of the Pennsylvania election results, and Pennsylvania's Supreme Court dismissed the lawsuit against mail ballots and prejudice. Sidney Powell has filed a lawsuit alleging massive election fraud in Michigan and Georgia, and Rudy Giuliani claims the Trump team has a mountain of evidence. Joe Biden is unlikely to offer Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren jobs, we're now being told. And Biden's communications team is raising questions over the revoking, or rather the revolving door with leftist networks coming from television networks that supported the Biden nomination now on the administration. Trump formally pardoned Michael Flynn and Barack Obama has taken a shot at evangelical Hispanics who voted for Trump despite what he called racist rhetoric. And after years of calling Trump supporters Nazis and Klan members, Alyssa Milano wants to extend an olive branch. Be interested to see what's on the end of that branch. Well, Facebook used secret internal ranking to suppress so-called right-wing sources after the election. And CNN is silent after an investigation finds a nurse's claim that dying patients do not believe in coronavirus is a massive exaggeration. YouTube snubbed Thanksgiving on its Twitter account, celebrating instead un-Thanksgiving Instead, nursing home COVID deaths now eclipse 100,000 in the U.S., and Johns Hopkins published, then deleted, an article questioning the COVID death rate. New York City plans to reopen schools for 200,000 students on December 7th, and 5,000 Alabama students haven't shown up for any sort of class. And the coronavirus has delayed the national math and reading tests until 2022. The U.S. sent an aircraft carrier to the Persian Gulf as Iran vows retaliation for a scientist's assassination there. And a thrice-deported illegal immigrant has been arrested for double homicide after the jail ignored an ICE detainer. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, simulcast with our sister station, KGNW 820, The Word. We'll be back. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're also listening to KGNW 820 The Word. I'm sitting in for a live from Seattle for the next few days. So welcome to our Seattle listeners. We're winding our way through some of the news headlines from the last several days as we've had a long holiday weekend. Well, Black Friday was a bust for many stores, but better online. Today being, what is it, Cyber Monday, they're hoping for even better. Roughly half as many people visited stores on Black Friday as they did last year, according to research firms that track foot traffic. Meanwhile, online spending jumped 22% from a year ago, making it the second best online shopping day ever measured by Adobe Analytics. Well, Amazon is uh, going on a hiring spree without equal. They added 427,300 employees between January and October, pushing its workforce to more than 1.2 million people globally, up more than 50 percent from a year ago. Its number of workers now approaches the entire population of Dallas. Well, as I mentioned earlier in the program, Nike and Coca-Cola, they're lobbying against Xinjiang forced labor bill. Welcome to the worst in corporate greed and swamp culture. China is persecuting an entire region of the country, but who wants to um, have to charge more for an iPhone or for Nikes? Hmm. Well, Britain is expecting to um, a very significant week for Brexit talks as the clock ticks down. And a Breonna Taylor protest leader, 21, has been killed in a shooting Land back campaign supporters vandalized statues in a national decolonial day of action over the, the long weekend. And the U.S. women's soccer team donned BLM shirts and knelt for the national anthem on foreign soil. The star-studded Time's Up charities spent big on salaries, but very little on actual charitable organizations. Meanwhile, Starbucks fires a barista for refusing to wear a pride shirt, according to a lawsuit. A Denver mayor who told citizens to avoid travel got caught flying for Thanksgiving. And MSNBC's Chris Hayes is haunted by a 2016 fun fact when he suggested electors abandon POTUS elect. I wonder if he's going to give the same advice this time around. Well, Taiwan lawmakers throw pig guts and punches on parliament floors, and a North Korean gymnast vaulted a 10-foot fence to defect to South Korea. Well, flish flatulence under the stranger-than-fiction moniker almost caused a diplomatic crisis in Sweden. Well, Alex Trebek recorded an inspiring Thanksgiving message before his recent death, and in the most Canadian story ever, officials warn motorists, do not let moose lick your car. The explanation for that? Still unclear. Well, on this day in history, 1963, John F. Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States, is assassinated while riding in a motorcade in Dallas, Texas. Governor John Connolly, the um, governor of Texas, in the same car is seriously wounded. The suspect, Lee Harvey Oswald, is arrested and Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson is sworn in as president. On this day in history, 1906, the SOS distress signal is adopted at the International Radio Telegraph Convention in Berlin. 1935, a flying boat, the China Clipper, takes off from Alameda, California, carrying more than 100,000 pieces of mail on the first Trans-Pacific airmail flight. And on this day in history, 1954, the Humane Society of the United States is incorporated as the National Humane Society. And finally, on this day in history, 1967, the U.N. Security Council approves Resolution 242, which calls for Israel to withdraw from territories it had captured the previous June and implicitly calls on adversaries to recognize Israel's right to exist. Still has uh, not been resolved. 
Well, here we are, the last day of November, and we still don't have a final outcome in the election. We have a presumed presidential nominee, but um, that is not settled until the elections are certified. Well, Arizona certified Biden as uh, the election winner there, and Wisconsin is expected to follow suit. Biden ended up carrying Arizona by just over 10,000 votes, or three-tenths of one percent of the vote. So if you've ever wondered if your vote counts, I think this is a great example as to why. President Trump suffered another setback in his push to overturn his defeat in the presidential election as Arizona certified president-elect Joe Biden's victory in that state. The results of the election were certified by the Secretary of State there, Katie Hobbs, who's a Democrat, with GOP Governor Doug Ducey, Republican State Attorney General Mark Abronovich, and State Supreme Court Chief Justice Robert Brutonell in attendance. The formalizing of the vote in Arizona leaves Wisconsin as the last remaining contested battleground state yet to certify its vote. Certification in Wisconsin is expected to take place later today if it hasn't already done so. Biden was projected the winner in Arizona on election night by Fox News and the Associated Press. The other major news networks projected Biden as the winner in the state a week later. Biden ended up carrying the state by just over 10,000 votes or three-tenths of one percent. The former vice president became the first Democrat since President Bill Clinton in 1996 to carry Arizona and only um, the, the third since President Harry Truman in 1948. Meanwhile, a district judge on Sunday night blocked three Georgia counties from altering or erasing data on Dominion voting machines after Republican nominees to the Electoral College filed an emergency motion. Judge Timothy Batten Sr., his order applies to Dominion voting machines in Cobb, Gwinnett, and Cherokee counties, which are clustered in the Atlanta metropolitan area. The order does not apply to Georgia's other 156 counties. After a general election and hand recount audit, Vice President Joe Biden was declared the winner of Georgia's general election for president by a margin of 12,670 votes on November 20th, 2020, the plaintiff wrote on Friday. But the vote count certified by the defendants in the November 20th um, uh, directive is wrong. Tens of thousands of votes counted toward Vice President Biden's final tally were the product of uh, illegality and physical and computer-based fraud leading to outright ballot stuffing. The challenge says Georgia's election process depends entirely on voting machines, tabulators and software purchased from Dominion Voting Systems Corporation. That was uh, compromised, they say. Computerized vote recording and tabulations are controlled by software programs that were designed to cheat and which were open to human manipulation. The filing continued. Well, the elector nominee who included uh, conservative teen pundit C.J. Pearson are seeking an order to allow them to inspect Dominion voting machines. They named Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, both Republicans, among the defendants. Paul Connor points out that as prompt the uh, president presses Uh, the Georgia governor to overrule the secretary of state on the signature uh, matching. Uh, There's a real crossroads for the president in this uh, in this matchup. Raffensperger has said that matching the signature on the outer envelope to the absentee ballot on the inside is impossible because the ballots are separated from the envelopes when they're open to protect voter privacy. Well, the Trump campaign, which formally asked for a recount November 22nd, says that without signature matching, this recount would be a sham and again allow for illegal votes to be counted. Georgia certified president-elect Joe Biden as the winner on the 20th of November. So the challenges continue. Meanwhile, the president says that he will leave if, 
Well, anyone who thinks President Donald Trump has accepted the inevitability of a Joe Biden inauguration on the 20th of January doesn't know Donald Trump. On Thanksgiving, after a teleconference with uh, with our troops, during which he extended his profound thanks to representatives from the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, Space Force, and Coast Guard, the commander-in-chief was asked by a reporter if he would leave the White House after an unsuccessful Electoral College vote. He replied, certainly I will. You know that I will. There was a caveat, but it's going to be very hard thing to concede, he said later, which is understandable. After all, a concession would require some sort of acknowledgement on his part that an uninspiring 78-year-old Joe Biden is the duly elected president of the United States. Well, that a guy who rarely took questions from reporters, rarely ventured out from his basement during the months leading up to the election, rarely drew more than a few dozen friends and family members to his occasional campaign events, somehow got 11 million more Americans to vote for him than did an energetic young Barack Obama during his one-of-a-kind 2008 campaign. So the president says he will leave, but it will be very difficult to concede and for others to believe. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're simulcasting with our sister station, KGNW 820 The Word. So stay with us. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. And if you're listening from Seattle, you're probably wondering who on earth is Georgine Rice. Well, for the next few days, I'm going to be sitting in for Live from Seattle at KGNW 820, The Word. So hang with us for the next few days and um, hope you'll... I uh, hope you'll enjoy the program. Later in the 5 o'clock hour today, we're going to hear a classic interview with Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of a really important book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. The book is published by Foundation Stone Press. He'll join us right at the top of the hour. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. Well, President-elect Joe Biden on Monday is going to receive his first presidential daily briefing, a report that will contain information from the nation's intelligence agencies. Well, the news was confirmed by Jen Psaki, who is Biden's transition spokeswoman, soon to be his White House press secretary. It follows the White House's go-ahead earlier in the week for Biden to begin receiving the president's daily briefing. Well, following the statutory director of the Presidential Transition Act, ODNI, will provide requested support to the transition team, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, which uh, prepares the um, reports said in a statement. This afternoon, the White House approved ODNI to move forward with providing the PBB, the PDB as part of the support to the transition. Though President Donald Trump still refuses to concede the election, his approval last week was necessary before Biden could begin receiving those briefings. Well, President-elect Joe Biden announced on Monday that he's going to nominate Janet Yellen, a former chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank, to be his secretary of the Treasury. Well, what does that mean to American taxpayers? Grover Norquist points out that to start, it means your personal income tax will increase. Your 401k will drop in value as the Biden administration and Yellen increase the corporate tax on the corporate stocks in your 401k. And your cost of gasoline and energy will increase. Most telling, Yellen will... Um, has previously, I should say, stated her opposition to the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, also known as the Trump Tax Cuts, which reduced the corporate income tax and personal income tax and gave us the most vigorous economy in a lifetime. She wrote in a, a, a co-bylined op-ed in the Washington Post back in 2018 that there was no need for a tax cut because the economy was already at or close to full employment and did not need a boost. 
Americans who found jobs after the enactment of the tax cuts would disagree. After the tax cuts were signed into law in December of 2017, the unemployment rate dropped from 4.1 percent to 3.5 percent just before the pandemic hit. African-American unemployment dropped from 6.7 to 5.8 percent and Hispanic unemployment from 5 percent to 4.4 percent. I'll leave it at that. But Janet Yellen will be the next secretary of the Treasury if the Senate confirms. One of the leading national LGBT activist organizations is urging presumptive president-elect Joe Biden following comments he made that emboldened them, he and his administration, to advance policies that would strip Christian colleges that uphold rules and stances that oppose homosexuality of their accreditation. In other words, if you hold a biblical view on the subject, you should lose your accreditation. Well, the request was part of the human rights campaign's blueprint for positive change, a recent document which offers 85 policy and legislative recommendations for a potential Biden administration. The document comes as Biden pledged through his 2020 campaign to advance LGBT equality in the U.S. and around the world. One of the recommendations proposes the elimination of non-discrimination exemptions for religious colleges if the institutions support biblical definitions of marriage or fail to offer scientific curriculum requirements. According to Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Kentucky, Louisville, uh, losing accreditation would devastate Christian schools. This is significant. Now, he argued that a policy like the one HRC, the Human Rights uh, Campaign, is advocating for could force religious institutions into capitulation or annihilation. Uh, In a blog post, he argued that colleges need accreditation from government-approved agencies to show they can give students a useful education. If a school isn't accredited, other schools often won't accept transfer credits and employers won't hire its graduates. If the human rights campaign achieves its policy goals, religious institutions will either be coerced into capitulation over uh, fundamental religious and theological doctrines, or they will be marginalized, he wrote. Well, this kind of policy goes even further than, for example, attempts to strip federal funding and student aid from institutions that will not surrender to the LGBTQ movement, end quote. Well, the human rights campaign's uh, reference to science-based curriculum refers to research claims about sexuality. And um, Al Mohler goes on to say that in terms of accreditation, that is an atomic bomb. The human rights campaign is targeting issues of sexual orientation and gender identity, cloaking them in the language of science. In the document's introduction, the human rights campaign said Trump misinterpreted the law to favor Christians. The Trump administration consistently mischaracterized the law in federal regulations, legal memorandums and litigation action. The document reads, these coordinated attacks on civil rights exploit the public's traditionally limited engagement with federal legal actions and administrative developments violating the public trust. The Biden administration must unravel these harmful regulations across the departments, reinstate the strong protections championed by President Obama, and put the U.S. back on the path toward equality for all LGBTQ people, the human rights campaign continued. Well, the documents list also includes making uh, refusal to hire people because of their uh, identity illegal, their LGBT identity, adding a non-binary option to passports, allowing transgender individuals to serve in the military and forcing faith-based charities to hire LGBT individuals, even when it violates their conscience. 
Well, the Department of Education should issue a regulation clarifying that this provision, which requires accreditation agencies to respect the state admission of religious institutions, does not require the accreditation of religious institutions that do not meet neutral accreditation standards, including non-discrimination policies and scientific curriculum requirements, the guidance document adds. In other words, religious freedom in these areas would all but be dead on campuses across the country. While if implemented, the Human Rights Campaign's policy proposal would tie accreditation to support for homosexuality and push Christian schools to the margin. This uh, comes with pretty chilling specificity and clarity. Uh, We dare not miss what is at stake, Moeller says, who also hosts a podcast. He said, the document also advises that religious schools which request an exemption from non-discrimination requirements notify the public that they have requested a Title IX exemption. To exercise their religious freedom, schools should have to... uh, Uh, go through a special process that would mark them as different from other schools, the document suggests. And it's uh, designed for that purpose. Students should have the ability to know which schools have claimed a right to discriminate against them in advance of applying for admission, the activist group said. Although any Christian school, you look at their charter, you would know how they stand on a particular issue like this one. But the Human Rights Campaign argues that schools should also be unable to, unable, let me emphasize that, to refer people struggling with their sexual identity to counselors. So you shouldn't be able to assist those who are looking for help that will help them find peace with their own biology. Additionally, the human rights campaign wants the Biden administration to interpret that doing so violates Title IX sex discrimination rules. So any counseling with regard to one's sexuality, even if you are seeking it for your own benefit, Joe Biden has an incredible opportunity to advance policies to improve the lives of LGBTQ Americans through the public health lens required by the pandemic, the blueprint document reads. The Christian Post reached out to the human rights campaign and the Democrat Party for comment. Responses have not yet been received, but this is an attempt to eliminate religious freedom for Christian schools or for any religious school that refuses to bow to the moral revolutionaries at the human rights campaign, Moeller um, maintained in response to all of this. This is a developing story. We will certainly continue to follow it. It has the potential to devastate Christian education all across the country and not just higher education. But again, we'll continue to follow that story. Next, we're going to um, hear from Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. That's coming up next on The Georgine Rice Show and live from Seattle. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next, we're going to review a book titled Licensing Selfishness, The Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. It's a fascinating book because it draws our attention to a human and natural trait that, if licensed, leads us in a direction that ultimately will lead not only to personal but national destruction. My guest is Paul Brownback. He is a Ph.D. He graduated from West Point, has a Master of Divinity degree from Talbert Theological Seminary, a Master of Human Relations from University of Oklahoma, and a Ph.D. from New York University. He has served as a pastor, a counselor, a college president. He's published two books, The Danger of Self-Love, which examines the contemporary self-esteem movement from a biblical perspective, and Counterattack. He writes a weekly article on moral, social, and political issues for his blog, Hope that's real.com. And today he joins us to talk about his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you so much for having me, Georgine. It's a real privilege. You make the point that the uh, human inclination towards selfishness is not a new story. It begins really right at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. But when you license selfishness, when you uh, elevate it to a virtue, uh, the damage it can cause, um, well, we're really seeing some of that even today. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean uh, with the, uh, the the phrase licensing selfishness? Well, Georgina, I believe that uh, the secular culture as well as evangelicals have adopted a concept that really gives us permission to live selfishly. It's saying that it's okay to uh, live any way we want to live. It's okay to make choices that benefit uh, ourselves, even at the expense of other people. As you pointed out, uh, human beings have uh, that inclination naturally, and uh, and when we license it, when we say it's okay, then we really do a lot of damage. You write that the current proliferation of selfishness doesn't merely result from normal uh, cultural erosion. It is licensed by an ideology of selfishness and interconnected ideology, psychology and theology that unleashes selfishness in both secular society and the evangelical church. Selfishness comprises a powerful human inclination without any encouragement. An ideology that protects and even promotes selfishness has put it on steroids, creating societal chaos. And you give uh, several examples of what this selfishness looks like. It's not just elevating one's own uh, personal interests, but it's also um, having an impact on the value of others, the the value of others who may hold a different point of view, who may um, want to do things differently. They are devalued to the point where my selfish interests uh, makes them a a non-entity, essentially. You know, the the concept that that I believe is so destructive, one that is accepted by secular society and one that's accepted by evangelicals, and uh, surprising to many of your listeners, I'm sure, but the concept is that of unconditional love and acceptance. And that has become the hallmark of, of our secular society. Actually, the, the whole aspect of unconditional love, unconditional acceptance, is the, the ultimate moral principle that guides our society. Uh, accepting is always right. Not accepting is always wrong. And so we see this playing out in, uh, oh, abortion. You can, you mm-hmm. can, uh, you know, kill your child and, uh, and, uh, and I accept you. Or, uh, you can, uh, be a transgender and a transgender male, uh, has to be accepted unconditionally. Therefore, uh, he must be accepted, uh, participating in women's sports. And so you have a, a girl who has uh, worked her heart out to excel in a sport and then have this biological male come along and, and steal her championship from her and all in the name of unconditional acceptance. We must accept this biological male unconditionally, which means that we must allow him to participate. We, we see this unconditional acceptance at work in many aspects of our secular society and also in evangelical society and it's it's extremely destructive as you pointed out when we, we when we talk about unconditional acceptance that sounds innocent enough well i accept you i love you unconditionally however when we say that in essence we're telling that person 
Uh, you can live any way you want to without consequences. I accept you just the same regardless of how you live, which means that uh, you accept them even if they hurt other people. And therefore, when you say, I accept you unconditionally, you're saying you're the only person that really matters. The people that you hurt really don't matter. And, and therefore, it's a very destructive concept. And it's wrecking havoc both in secular society and uh, in evangelical society. I suppose it's not surprising that secular society would move, um, would co-op, in fact, concepts that they believe reflect a Christian worldview and move in a direction that, uh, again, elevates selfishness to a, a virtue. But within the evangelical church, I suppose that is more surprising to me, given the fruit of the Spirit and what the scriptures teach. Is there a, a belief that unconditional love and acceptance is another way of expressing the concept of grace? And is that what God's accepting and uh, receiving us unto himself, this holy God that we serve. Is that what uh, his grace is? Well, I believe that that is how this concept actually made its way into evangelical mindset. Uh, it's not, this concept, unconditional love and acceptance, not found in Scripture. The, the term is not found in Scripture, nor is the concept. Uh, it, it probably made its way into the evangelical world, first of all, to to the Jesus people. And, and Jesus people did a lot of good things. They brought a lot of vitality, a lot of evangelical zeal to, to the evangelical church. But they also dragged along with them uh, the, uh, the ideologies of the hippie movement. And this was one of the, one of the ideologies. And so uh, they, they were responsible, I think, at least to some extent, in introducing it to the evangelical church and, and baby boomers, likewise, they they uh, picked up this concept in in schools and entertainment industry uh, from the uh, mainstream media, and and therefore they uh, <clears throat> brought it into the evangelical uh, uh, community. But the major conduit, I believe, was uh, uh, evangelical psychology back in the. 70s and 80s, we find the advent of a, a strong uh, presence of evangelical psychology. And back in that day, uh, this concept of unconditional love and acceptance was a major uh, force within secular psychology, and that's where they got their training in, in, in this perspective. And so uh, as evangelicals began to uh, embrace psychology. They they picked it up from there. But but as you mentioned, <clears throat> and one major reasons why we felt at home with the concept of unconditional love and acceptance is that it it seems to reflect grace. I, I mean, grace is God accepting us apart from works. And so, at least from a casual perspective, uh, well, that would seem to say, well, He accepts us unconditionally. And that's not accurate. Uh, there are conditions to grace. Grace is, is not unconditional. For example, saving, saving grace, uh, the, the condition is faith. If we didn't have a condition, everybody would be saved. But Scripture says, no, you receive God's grace when you, you uh, exercise saving faith. So, so grace is a conditional term. But... Uh, Again, a more casual understanding of grace uh, 
gives people the impression, oh, grace and unconditional acceptance seem to be the same thing. And I, I believe evangelicals have equated the two, and uh, that's what's uh, prompted us to buy into this error. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Dr. Paul Brownback, his latest book, Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology. He has a fascinating history of how it made its way into uh, the church as well as into the broader secular society and the impact on our culture, on entertainment, and on our national life. We'll continue that conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Paul Brownback. He's the author of Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America, a fascinating uh, book that gives a bit of history and context to understanding this notion. Now, is this uh, the disagreement between Calvinism and Arminian uh, point of view uh, from a theological point of view? Is it a theological question? Uh, or is it a, a question of culture influencing theology in general within the evangelical church? Well, it really doesn't get into the uh, Arminian Calvinist issue. It, it uh, actually has been uh, adopted by uh, people with both of those perspectives, and mm-hmm. it doesn't really get into that per se. It's, it's more of an issue of uh, Christian living. And... Uh, <clears throat> See, if if we believe that a person is accepted unconditionally, that takes us to some other beliefs that we bought into. One of them is the idea that we don't have to perform to please God or be accepted by Him, and that's that's a, a common cliche among evangelicals today. Well, you non-performance-based Christianity, and they they talk about well, we don't want to be dragged back into performance-based Christianity, and uh, well, non-performance-based Christianity is an outgrowth of unconditional acceptance. If if we accept somebody unconditionally, that means that, that they don't have to live a certain way. They don't have to perform for our acceptance. And so, likewise, if if God accepts them unconditionally, that means that uh, that they don't have to perform to please God. It doesn't matter how they live. God is just as pleased with them. There's a cliche today, there's nothing you can do to make God love you more and nothing you can do to make God love you less. And so so your lifestyle has nothing to do with God's attitude toward you. you another way uh, that that is expressed today is that when God uh, looks on you, he doesn't see uh, your performance he, or some people say, well, he doesn't see your dirt. He, he doesn't see your sinfulness. He just sees the righteousness of Christ. And, and you know, Georgine, when you look at Scripture, you just, you just see virtually hundreds of passages that say that this is not the case. For example, you take the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Here the church just gets kicked off. We have the Pentecost. We have all kind of people becoming coming to the Lord and, and so forth. And then we have Ananias and Sapphira coming along and, and seeming from Scripture, these are two believers, and uh, and they uh, perform a very generous act. They sell a property and give a substantial portion of it to the church, 
And uh, <clears throat> I imagine in today's world, the church leaders would be very happy with that. The problem is that they lied about it. They said they gave the total amount to the church when they only gave part, and God struck them dead. Well, you say that doesn't really reflect unconditional love and acceptance. Uh, God drowning most of the population of the world in the flood certainly doesn't reflect unconditional love and acceptance. God's uh, destruction of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah is another uh, expression that God does not love and accept unconditionally. And, and someone might say, well, yeah, but that's Old Testament stuff. How about the New Testament? And well, we, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, but we also have the situation of the uh, church in Corinth that uh, uh, during the communion service, rather than being sensitive toward people who have less, there were some people in the, the church that, that brought a, a really big box lunch and, and stuffed themselves while others looked on hungrily. And God said, or Paul said in the 1 Corinthians 11.30, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, or many, uh, many die. And, and God apparently smoked some of these people dead for, for this act of selfishness. Or we find the tribulation ahead, and, and we, we find the uh, book of Revelation talking about 100-pound hailstones falling on people, and, and, and that certainly does not reflect unconditional acceptance. And, and then there's the issue of an eternal hell, which, which also uh, indicates that God does not accept those people unconditionally. So many, many portions of Scripture, many passages of Scripture shows that this is not biblical, and yet it has been embraced by contemporary evangelicals. And, and again, it's a dangerous concept because really it licenses selfishness. One of the uh, results of this is that uh, there's, there's very little preaching on sin anymore. And the reason mm -hmm. is that doesn't fit into the contemporary evangelical template. You write about um, the remedy for licensed selfishness, and that is agape love. That's not something politics can produce. It's not something that entertainment culture can produce. This is a, the function of the church. Can you talk a bit about how we um, resist this licensed selfishness that is so prevalent in the secular community as well as within the church? Well, first of all, we need to get back to the understanding and recognizing the authority of God. When you think about unconditional acceptance, uh, if, if we believe that God accepts us unconditionally, that really undermines the authority of God. That means uh, God does not exercise his authority toward us. We can live any way we want to. We can... We can uh, neglect God's commands. Uh, we can neglect the teaching of the scripture, and God's just as happy with us uh, while we do that. So it undermines God's authority. We need to get back to where we recognize that, that God is a God of authority. He tells us how to live, and we need to be obedient to that, and there are consequences when we're not. We lose fellowship. Uh, we lose reward. We lose his blessing. In fact, Scripture says he doesn't even listen to our prayers. 
we need to get back to the authority of Scripture. Uh, as I've already mentioned, uh, this concept just ignores many, many passages of Scripture. Uh, contemporary evangelicals tend to per- uh, cherry-pick their Scriptures that they that they uh, teach and preach on, and they ignore so many others that don't fit into this template of unconditional acceptance. And then we need to to get back to where we uh, we exercise the disciplines necessary to live a mm-hmm. godly life. Unconditional acceptance has really weakened us. We it's 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 like a, a a football player going out there, but not not doing any exercises and. And, and and because of that, we've become weak, and we need to regain the the uh, spiritual muscle to uh, fight in the culture war. Well, we certainly are in a culture war, and you write about that in the book, Licensing Selfishness. In the last chapter, you include a plan that would enable evangelicals to win the culture war. Can you give us a bit of an overview of that plan, how we can influence the culture around us in a way that will restore what's been lost? Well, I sure can. And this for me is a is a very significant and and a frustrating issue in a way. Uh, I, I I saw a uh, television special or a YouTube special last night on uh, on America, and uh, in it they made the point that the church is is the greatest threat to the left in this country. That that we have the power to to uh, overcome the the forces of the left in this country and restore righteousness and decency and so forth. Why aren't we? What, what is the reason why why we are not uh, exercising the power that God has given us? And uh, I list several factors. Uh, one of them is corporate prayer. The Apostle Paul in First Timothy chapter two says that. Uh, that uh, corporate prayer uh, is, is one of the the major uh, factors that we need to give attention to in the church. He he says there first of all that prayer needs to be made. Talking about prayer within the church, most church services we go to today have very little prayer. We have people praying individually, but in terms of church prayer, it is practically practically non-existent. But a major factor is unity. Uh, evangelicals today do not have a unified approach to fighting the culture war. We we are splintered. We we uh, do the, our major fighting through parachurch organizations, and they do a great job. I think about American Family Association, American Research Council, and others mm-hmm. doing a great job in in terms of as as much as they can do as as individual organizations, but. But without unity, without a unified approach, uh, uh, there is a very limited amount to what we could accomplish. If the evangelical church, and I'm not suggesting that we all meet in the same building or anything, but but I I am suggesting that if we had something like a a, a unifying organization like uh, like a uh, uh, social action center that that under which all evangelicals would would come together and join in the culture war, uh, we could have a great influence. But we don't have that kind of coordinated effort. And, and because of that, 
uh, the uh, the secular world just defeats us at almost every turn. For example, uh, right now a major problem is social media, and mm-hmm. we see this in the news almost every day. They so social media uh, blocking uh, conservative and Christian messages, and uh, well, it, 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 uh, there there are probably about thirty million evangelical Christians in the country today. Well, we could have our own social media. And uh, and it could be as big as Facebook. It could be as big as Twitter. And it wouldn't have to be necessarily labeled as Christian. It could be um, just the good social media, but it could be controlled by Christians. And uh, and because it's not labeled Christian, many, many unsaved people, many people in the secular world could join in, and it could be a dominant force as as influential as Facebook and as Twitter, but because of our lack of unity, we can't do that, and uh, and therefore we are victimized by uh, by these forces. Well, there's so Think much another, more. Uh, Go I'm ahead. Sorry, I was going to say there's so much more in your book that we won't have time to, to get into. Uh-huh. Um, but again, the title is Licensing Selfishness, the Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Now, where can our listeners acquire a copy of the book and follow um, the social media, your blog that you uh, write on, on a regular basis? Uh, you can uh, you can get the book almost at every outlet, Amazon or uh, Nook or uh, it's in uh, both print form and it's in the electronic form, ebook form. So uh, it's, it's available almost, almost anywhere. Uh, and my blog, the uh, actually I've, I've changed the name of my blog. It's truthforyou.com. T-R-U-T-H-F-O-R and the letter U. dot com. And uh, I would uh, love to have people uh, tune into my uh, my blog, and and I try to to uh, write to that every week. Well, uh, the book is absolutely fascinating, and I'm sorry we don't have more time to go in depth because there's a lot of depth in the book that we didn't get to. But I thank you for taking the time to uh, join us here today. And again, I would encourage our listeners to read Licensing Selfishness, The Secular and Evangelical Ideology Destroying America. Dr. Brownback, thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court on Wednesday night blocked New York Governor Andrew Cuomo from reimposing strict attendance caps on worship services in areas that have been hit pretty hard by the coronavirus. Well, the court ruled five to four to bar the governor from enforcing his uh, cluster initiative on October the 6th against houses of worship that sued to challenge those restrictions. Well, the order was uh, also first in which uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett played a decisive role. Now, Barrett, who was President Trump's third Supreme Court nominee, joined the court on the 27th of October after winning Senate confirmation following the September 18th death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. 
Well, meanwhile, Chief Justice John Roberts joined the court's liberal wing in the dissenting opinion, which stated the court had acted rashly. Well, Cuomo's initiative had created color-coded limits on mass gatherings and business operations in an effort to stem the outbreak in the New York City areas where the, they were experiencing surges in cases, according to Bloomberg News. Well, it was aimed at worship services at some synagogues and Roman Catholic churches in parts of Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, in the hardest-hit areas, which were designated red zones, the state limited attendance to, uh, to houses of worship to 25% of their capacity, or 10 people, whichever was fewer. Well, the majority said his limits violated the First Amendment's protection of free exercise of religion. Well, Justice Neil Gorsuch, in the uh, concurring opinion, said Cuomo had treated religious activities less favorably than non-religious activities, according to the New York Times. Well, it is a time, past time, to make plain that while the pandemic poses many grave challenges, there is no, uh, no world in which the Constitution tolerates color-coded executive edicts that reopen liquor stores and bike shops but shutter churches, synagogues, and mosques. Now, Gorsuch, who was also named to the court by Trump, uh, wrote in his opinion. So at least, according to the governor, it may be unsafe to go to church, but it is always fine to pick up another bottle of wine, shop for a new bike, or spend the afternoon exploring your distal points and meridians, he continued, according to a tweet from The Economist. Stephen Mazie's um, uh, correspondent wrote, who knew public um, health would so perfectly align with secular convenience. The justice, the associate justice went on to say, well, the ruling was seen as a reversal from earlier action taken during the pandemic this year by the high court in response to state restrictions on organized religion. Well, the justices previously refused to lift restriction on churches in California and Nevada. In the dissenting opinion, Roberts explained why the court's liberals opposed the decision. Numerical capacity limits of 10 and 25 people, depending on the applicable zone, do seem unduly restrictive, Roberts wrote, according to the Times. It is not necessary, however, for us to rule on that serious and difficult question at this time. The governor might reinstate the restrictions he continued, but he also might not. And it is a significant matter to override determinations made by public health officials concerning what is necessary for public safety in the re, in the midst of a deadly pandemic. If the governor does reinstate the numerical restrictions, the applicants can return to this court and we could act quickly on this renewed application. Well, happy Thanksgiving, Trump wrote, shared the sharing the Supreme Court's ruling. Trump has repeatedly pushed back against shutdown measures to curb the spread of the virus. The American Civil Liberties Union condemned the decision and warned it could undermine New York's efforts to curb the pandemic. The freedom to worship is one of the most cherished fundamental rights, but it does not include a license to harm others or endanger public health. I guess the expectation is if you don't follow specifically what the governor has outlined, which would not apply to other institutions like a bike shop or a liquor store, and it would be fine. Somehow the church being a different sort of institution would be responsible, uh, would be, would act irresponsibly uh, in in the freedom now given by the Supreme Court. Well, New York City, once the global epicenter of the virus, has reported a steady rise in COVID infections in recent weeks, prompting Mayor de Blasio to close public schools for the second time. The city has reported more than 305,000 cases, 24,000 deaths related to COVID-19. New York's temporary restrictions on indoor gatherings do not discriminate against houses of worship and, in fact, 
uh, treat uh, them better than comparable non-religious gatherings. Uh, the executive director of the New York Civil Liberties Union wrote, the Supreme Court's decision will unfortunately undermine New York's efforts to curb the pandemic. Now, I attended a church, not in New York, but here in the Portland area, where it was restricted to 25. And I was really quite impressed. This was not a home church. This was a church we were invited to come to lead worship uh, for. And it, I was so impressed by the lengths to which they went to protect not only um, parishioners, but also to protect the general public in trying to comply with what the governor has stated. Now, whether or not you agree with those standards, um, there was an effort to respect the authority who made them. And um, again, it was rather impressive to see the lengths to which they went to make sure people were socially distanced and, of course, wearing their masks. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is considering shortening the current coronavirus quarantine timeline from 14 to between 7 and 10 days. That's according to a Wall Street Journal report. Well, the agency reportedly hopes to change, uh, hopes the change will inspire more people to comply with the guidelines. Well, in a statement provided to to news outlets, an agency spokesperson said so much, um, uh, no such change had been finalized, but they are considering it. The CDC is always reviewing its guidance and recommendations in the light of new understandings of the virus that causes COVID-19 and will announce such changes when appropriate, the spokesperson said. Well, Henry Walk, who's the agency's incident manager for COVID-19 response, told the Wall Street Journal that the new guidelines would also include a test to ensure a person is negative for coronavirus before ending that quarantine. He said that once the test is negative, the probability of the person going on to develop the infection is pretty low. We do think that the work that we've done and some of the studies that we've um, had and uh, modeling data that we have shows that we can now, uh, we can with testing shorten quarantines. This was in an, an exclusive Wall Street Journal interview. It wasn't clear what type of testing would be accepted or when it would be, uh, would need to occur to quantify an end to the quarantine period, but this is something they are at least contemplating. Now, just to be clear, this is not the new guidance from the CDC. This is what the CDC, according to this individual, is says is contemplating that would make those quarantine periods shorter than the recommend, uh, recommended 14 days that we currently see today. Meanwhile, the CDC director, Redfield, he predicts that COVID vaccines will be available in mid-December, becoming available in the United States by the end of the second week. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield said on Tuesday, he said that in the daily briefing in an interview that the vaccine would be made available in hierarchical way that will prioritize nursing home residents and then some combination of healthcare providers and individuals at high risk for a poor outcome. The Food and Drug Administration will hold a December 10th meeting of its vaccines and related biological products advisory committee to review Pfizer's request for emergency use authorization of its vaccine candidate, which the drug maker and German partner BioNTech announced last week is 95 percent effective. I do think we have about 40 million doses of vaccine before the end of the year, Redfield said. That's enough to vaccinate 20 million people, but then it will continue through January and February, and hopefully by March, we'll start to see vaccine available for the general public. So that's March. Pfizer is one of three promising vaccine candidates. Moderna, which, by the way, has just uh, requested emergency um approval. Uh, AstraZeneca is the other, have said that their vaccine candidates are 94.5% effective and 90% per, uh, effective respectively. Moderna said last week it intends to submit to the EUA request to the FDA 
in the coming weeks. And what I read earlier in the day today is that that is this week. Redfield will acknowledge that the it's exceptional that we have these vaccines and very exciting, urging Americans to continue taking precautions to mitigate the spread of the virus. But it looks like it won't be available to the general public until March. So keep that in mind. That's uh, when they're telling us we are likely going to have access as the general public if, in fact, uh, we choose to um, to take the vaccine. And again, just to clarify, Moderna announced today, this morning, that it will seek emergency approval for its coronavirus vaccine from the Food and Drug Administration. It came after they confirmed that their vaccine is 94% effective against the virus. And if approved, their vaccine could be available to certain segments of the population within two weeks. So just clarifying where Moderna sounds stands at this point. Also, leading COVID vaccines still need to earn federal regulatory approval, but an estimated 30,000 frontline healthcare workers in Oregon will be vaccinated against COVID by the end of the year. That's according to the Oregon Health Authority director, Pat Allison, and making that announcement last Wednesday. That assumes that vaccines in development now earn federal regulatory approval in the coming weeks. Well, the announcement was a bright spot in an otherwise gloomy news conference where the governor announced most of the state would remain under a freeze order, limiting capacity in retail businesses, banning indoor dining. Restaurants can resume outdoor service next week or this week. Allen said the proposed, the prospect rather, of a vaccine underscores the need for Oregonians to work together to stop the spread of COVID now. A no COVID vaccine has yet been approved by the Food and Drug Administration, but Pfizer submitted an application on the 20th seeking emergency use authorization, which would allow some Americans to get the vaccine. And uh, Moderna has said it intends to apply um, sometime this week for the same. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back to wrap things up. Oregon Governor Kate Brown, she's lifted some of the restrictions for some counties, lifted some restrictions within the highest risk targeted counties. And this is pretty good news for small businesses and families who are suffering under this very tough lockdown for many, one of the nation's harshest Uh, Putting it into context, well, the governor confessed a one-size-fits-all approach did not make sense moving forward. The governor deserves some applause for acknowledging that fact that many of us believe from the beginning. Well, as a result, churches will no longer be solely under a hard cap, but more under a percentage cap, 25% based on the capacity size of their meeting spaces. Gyms and restaurants will be allowed to hold outdoor activities. This ban made um, uh, no sense under the ban because of the low risk of outdoor spread of COVID-19. So these changes make good sense. And despite making sense and being low risk changes, uh, they'll not go into effect until later next week. And uh, opposite of the relaxed guidelines, Governor Brown did tighten shopping malls and grocery capacity from 75% to 50%. I read several stories earlier today suggesting that many people are contracting uh, contracting uh, the virus during shopping. Now, they didn't say specifically grocery shopping, but they did say shopping in general. So how that is the case, since people are required to wear masks, Uh, They are required to socially distance. Many retail outlets, including grocery stores, uh, sort of give guidance as to which direction to go and and so on. So that's uh, pretty shocking to me. But nonetheless, um, those restrictions have gone the opposite direction as the loosening of the restrictions the governor made in other areas. Well, this Thanksgiving for me, like for many of you, was rather peculiar. I have not um, had a Thanksgiving in my lifetime in which my family wasn't there present in total. 
My sister and her husband and their kids were not with us. My grandniece and nephews were not with us. But we did have an opportunity to have one small branch of the family. My brother, his son and daughter uh, joined us for Thanksgiving. And it was such a blessing to be in the same uh, room together to express gratitude and thanksgiving and to enjoy one another's company. Now, I know many of you know that my mom will be turning 90 years old in just a couple of weeks on December the 13th. Um, so we're, we've been very protective of her. We've made certain that even in situations like our Thanksgiving gathering, we were socially distanced and observed all the proprieties, if you will, to make sure that she wasn't compromised in any way. But it was such a blessing. But I tell you what was a real challenge for me was the day after Thanksgiving. Now, for many years, I would go so far as to say for decades, the day after Thanksgiving for me has been opening day of the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. While most people are shopping for Black Friday, I'm putting together all my last minute details to make my way to the Keller Auditorium to join what is the most amazing group of people that makes up the Singing Christmas Tree Choir in America. I'll go so far as to say that that didn't happen. And there was a a feeling of loneliness. I didn't have my friends close by. We weren't seeing that curtain open and listening to the uh, uh, to the choir sing with the orchestra and watching Wes Walterman direct Uh, to direct it all, and um, Greg Tamblin and all the the folks who make up the Portland Singing Christmas Tree and make it a spectacular event. Well, that has been a tradition for lots of people for many, many years. But I am thrilled to tell you that the Portland Singing Christmas Tree is streaming a tree spectacular. Uh, It's going to begin on December the 15th through the 1st of January. So for those of you who have had this Portland Singing Christmas tree, a part of your Christmas tradition, that's how you kind of kick things off. There's going to be opportunity to include the Singing Christmas tree in this year's tradition as well. Now for $25, you can stream uh, a pretty spectacular series of performances from the Keller Auditorium. There's going to be some additional material here from some of the principals. You'll hear some of the backstories, a special message from Santa. Anyway, I just wanted to mention that I'm excited that after 58 years, the tradition continues for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. You can learn more about that on their website or at singingchristmastree.org. But for me, that was one of the deficits in this long holiday weekend. I did not have the opportunity to just be in fellowship with the Singing Christmas Tree Choir and the people I have come to know and love so much over these last uh, several decades, I guess only two plus decades. Um, But I'm delighted that there's an opportunity for folks who have enjoyed the tree or who have missed it every year because it begins right after Thanksgiving. And I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to who said, oh, we were planning on going, but now it's over. So you have an opportunity from December the 15th through January the 1st to enjoy Portland Singing Christmas Tree. These are performances from the Keller Auditorium. Some of the best of the best music has been selected. And again, with some uh, commentary in between from some of the principals whose performances you may know, some of the directors and so on. It's going to be an extravaganza, a spectacular. So check that out. Um, and if you need your Portland Singing Christmas Tree fix, that's one way to do it. It will also help to keep the Singing Christmas Tree alive. Canceling an entire season has a, a significant impact on the bottom line. So you can imagine that in order for the Singing Christmas Tree to be at the Keller Auditorium live, as is the tradition in 2021, this is going to help underwrite that moving forward. So check it out at singingchristmastree.org for uh, all the details.
Well, this is a pandemic in which we uh, are facing or looking back now at Thanksgiving and facing a Christmas that may be very different, which is a challenge, I think, for all of us. We have traditions that we've come to rely upon. We have sort of nostalgia about how things used to be and how much we enjoy the celebrations we have known in the past. And this year presents for us unexpected challenge. And I want to challenge all of us as I'm challenging myself to be creative this year, to not rely on what we're missing as Christmas approaches, but to consider new traditions that can begin and the benefits of perhaps smaller groups in your homes, smaller gatherings, um, opportunities to reach out to people who are at some physical distance, maybe family members who don't live in close proximity in your city or town, but you might connect with online in other ways. I see this as an opportunity that God has given us to make the main thing or to keep the main thing the main thing. And for all of us, to enjoy celebrating the incarnation of Christ in ways that may take us deeper because we won't have as many things to occupy our time and as much activity and so on. So let's make this a great season as we begin Advent tomorrow. Let's let's purpose to make this a significant season, not one marred by a pandemic, but one that is blessed by uh, a pace that's slower, uh, more time that can be given to things that really matter, and connecting with one another, perhaps in deeper ways, not in close physical proximity, but in ways that go deeper. So I hope you'll join me in making this the best Christmas season ever, because Christ did come. He accomplished everything the Father intended. He has called us to himself, and we have opportunity to minister to others and to be a blessing. So I don't see anything to complain about in all of that. Hey, thanks so much for listening. If you didn't pick up earlier, we are simulcasting with Seattle uh, through this and next week. So you're going to hear references to Seattle uh, for the the next uh, couple of weeks. We are welcoming them to the fold and um, we'll try to uh, include some Washington stories as well. So I hope you'll enjoy having that expanded content. Hey, thanks so much for listening and have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.